Well, my name's Nick, and I'm one of the pastors here at Point Community Church, and I have a problem. I actually have lots of problems. <laughs> Talk to my wife, and she could just list them all off for you, okay? Uh, we always say that we're not a perfect family, and that starts with me as one of the pastors here, as one of the leaders here. I, I've got issues. Uh, there's a lot of junk in my life that I wish wasn't there, but the truth of the matter is uh, I like to say I believe a lot of things. I like to even uh, confess to wanting to do a lot of good things, but I don't always do what I want to do. Anybody uh, identify with that? I, I want to be a good person. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good husband. And, and what I want to really start out today by saying is that I want to be a servant. Like, I, I want people to, to see my life and go, wow, he's such a servant. But I, I think a lot of times when I, when I look at my life, what I see in me is I like the idea of servanthood. I like the concept. I, I like the, the, uh, the idea that we should mobilize to minister to the needs of others, to meet the needs of others around us, to serve. But the reality is that actually putting that into motion is very difficult. To actually move from talking about being a servant to actually serving. Now let me just give you a few examples because maybe these are things that you, you can get with me. But uh, when I hear these things, these things really mess with my flesh. And when I say my flesh, I mean my selfish desires, my, this part of me that really doesn't, uh, doesn't want to serve even though I like the idea of serving. Uh, how about this? Cleaning a toilet. Anybody just like cleaning toilets? Uh, changing a diaper. We have changed a lot of diapers in my house, okay? Uh, I was going to say they're changing another kid's diaper who's not my child. That, like, that's a whole other level for me, okay? Uh, but just know, changing a diaper, that just kind of messes with me. Uh, we're going to get a raise when we finally get our kids out of diapers. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. We're going to be like, we can go on date night now. We don't have to buy diapers anymore. Um, but, but changing a diaper, mopping a floor or sweeping a floor or maybe even like taking a toothbrush and cleaning the grout on a floor. Oh, this is like just totally like I love the idea of somebody else doing that. <laughs> okay. How about caring for a sick person? You know, I, when I'm sick, I'm one of those guys that's like, I just want to lay and I want people to care for me. But when somebody else is sick, I'm like, hey, figure, figure it out. Do it for yourself, you know. Like I don't want to get sick too. <laughs> I don't want to get your germs on me. I don't want you sneezing on me, coughing on me, hacking on me, right? Taking care of a sick person. Or what about serving a meal to the homeless? Or, or maybe what about something like washing the dishes? And I saw one or two elbows there, because I think a few of you kind of had this adver aversion to washing the dishes. Those are all menial tasks, and they're tasks that have to be done if our houses aren't going to be total chaos and messes, right? They're just things that you have to do. They're things that are part of life. And, and yet, like, somebody's got to step up and say, I'll serve, I'll do that, I'll, I'll be involved in that task, I'll take care of that. And when we talk about servanthood, sometimes we talk about servanthood in the way that it's like the glamorous tasks. It's the things that we get recognition for. It's the things that people get Citizen of the Year awards for. Or person on the company staff who's the most servant-hearted. Oh, that's great, you know. But when you think about serving, it really comes down to the tasks that go on in everyday life that we come sometimes in our flesh resist and battle against. And I want us today to talk about the person who we believe is the greatest servant. This should come as no surprise to us as Christians in this room, right? The greatest servant who ever walked the face of the planet was Jesus. He was the ultimate servant. He regularly referred to himself as the Son of Man. Now, Maybe that doesn't mean much to you, 
But when he called himself the son of man, there were two components to that. One is that he was acknowledging the fact that he was human. Okay, that's great. Jesus was human. Why is that such a big deal? Because he was also God. And that that God, who was the king, who was there when the earth was created, who was a part of making everything that we see and exist, including us, that, that God who put all this into motion has now taken on the form of a human being. I mean, that's craziness, isn't it? And he became a servant. It also referred to, as we said a few weeks back, that Jesus was saying he's also divine and and he's king and he used this subtle language of I am the son of man to really mask in some ways the fact that he didn't want people to know his identity as the Messiah until it was the right time until he was it was really the time for him to go and to suffer ultimately on the cross so when we look at Jesus's life I think we have no better example in our world of what it looks like to be a servant than to look at Jesus so if you've got a Bible, I want you to open up to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be camping out today. And we're going to begin in verse 32. Verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles under the chairs around you. Feel free to grab one of those. Scriptures will also be up on the screen, but I love it when you get a chance to read it for yourself from a physical Bible in front of you. Let's start in verse 32. We're going to read a little bit and unpack a little bit and read a little bit and unpack a little bit and work our way through this as we look at Jesus as the ultimate servant. Because if he's the one that we're to be following, if he's the one who we are to model our lives after, then we need to look at his life in depth and ask the question, okay, how do we live more like him? And we want to address that today. So as we look at verse 32, it says this. They were on the road, they being the disciples, those that were following Jesus, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Now, I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Here's Jesus, who has been leading his disciples. He's been investing his disciples. And if those of you that are reading along in the book of Mark with us, we have a reading guide in our worship guide we hand out every week. And if you've been reading along with us, You've noticed that Mark moves pretty fast through all these stories, but he is now um, starting to make a turn in the book. There's a, there's a turn that happens here where Jesus is now headed to Jerusalem. Now, maybe again, that doesn't make a lot of, uh, big, of a big deal to us, but when you look at what you know is coming, you realize that Jesus is now turning towards Jerusalem with the anticipation that when he gets there, he's going to face all kinds of resistance. He's going to face all kinds of hardship. The the pressure has been mounting. And all of the religious leaders who really hated Jesus' guts, I mean, and that's really an understatement, they they literally hated him. Uh, They were camping out in Jerusalem. That's where they hung out, right? That's where the temple was. And so Jesus is now headed to Jerusalem. He's on his way with his disciples. And notice what it says. It says that his disciples, those that were following, are kind of backing off a little bit. They followed him at a a distance. Jesus is confidently doing his thing, and he's going, and they're kind of like, okay, we're getting closer to Jerusalem. This thing's getting ready to hit the fan, and it's going to be crazy, and we're not real sure what to do, so let's kind of keep a little bit more distance here. You tracking? Okay. So here's what's going on. They're doing this. They're walking there, and 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 they're at a distance. And it even says that the disciples were astonished. Well, why just in walking down the road were the disciples astonished? They were astonished that Jesus is just like, I'm just going. I'm doing this thing. 
I'm, I'm not going to turn back. I'm not going to stop. Uh, the plan is going to go forward, and I'm going to keep pressing on, knowing that what, again, I'm about to walk into is going to be crazy, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, and I'm going to need, need my father like I've never needed my father before. And he just walks in, and they're astonished. Okay, So then, in the midst of all that, he says this. He says, listen, we are going to Jerusalem. As if to say, these guys are like going, hey, do we really need to go to Jerusalem? Like, can we like go to another town? Can we just kind of keep this whole, uh, uh, you know, circuit preacher thing going? You just go heal some more people. Let's go like, make some more food for 5,000 people. Let's go do some more fun stuff, right? And he's like, no, listen, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. His head, he has set that direction. He is headed into Jerusalem. And it says that he, he then begins to tell them what's going to happen. Now, this is the third time that Jesus predicts his death, his suffering, like prior to his death, and then his death. He pre- predicts it three different times. He tells his disciples, this is what's going to happen. The first time he tells it was in uh, chapter 8, which Harley referred to last week. Uh, shortly after Peter makes his declaration that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the next thing that Jesus says is, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And what does Peter say to him then? No, you're not. We're not going to let that happen to you. You can't do this. You can, you can be quiet. Just quit talking like that, Jesus. And, and Jesus in that moment says, get behind me, Satan, right? So Peter, at that point, he's only thinking again about the implications that if Jesus dies, we're all going to die, right? There's that part of it. And he's like, you can't let that happen. This isn't the plan. And Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan. I'm going to do what my father's told me to do, what I came here to do, what my mission is, Okay. Second time it happens is in chapter 9, which we skipped over on Sundays. But if you've been reading with us, you read through that, that part of the story. And what's interesting in the chapter 9 is that um, he, they're, they're, they're again walking. And Jesus predicts his death. He tells them what's going to happen. And they're having this conversation. Actually, it says they were actually arguing among themselves. And do you know what they were arguing about? They were arguing about who's the greatest Okay, Jesus is getting to the point where he's trying to say, hey, boys, listen, it's getting ready to get really nasty. It's going to get really gnarly. I'm going to go through all this pain and suffering. And these guys, these jokers are back there having a conversation about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Now, I love, again, that Mark just paints a really honest picture of the disciples. Because sometimes we glamorize them, right? We just see the painting on the wall with the disciples sitting around Jesus at the Lord's Supper. And they got these little halo things glowing around them. And they're like, oh, man, these dudes were amazing. No, they were human beings. They, they, were, they were just like us. They had issues, and they had struggles in their flesh. And, and, and so we see this, this again in chapter 10 where he says, hey, guys, I'm going to die. In fact, it says it this way in verse 33. The Son of Man, where he calls himself again, the Son of Man, reminding us that he's human, will be handed over to the chief priests who were hanging out in Jerusalem and the scribes, those who would record all of the Scripture, and they knew it frontwards and backwards because they'd spent hours literally transcribing these texts. And they will condemn him to what? Death. They're going to condemn him to death. Jesus knew this was coming. Guess, listen, the cross did not surprise Jesus. The cross did not surprise. The crucifixion, the suffering, the beating, the blows he was about to take. In fact, he even goes on to say, this is what's going to happen before I even get to the cross. They're going to hand me over. They will mock me. They will spit on me. They will flog me. They will kill me. How many of you, if you knew that was coming, 
would just walk right into the middle of that. If you knew that where you were about to head, this was going to happen to you. Not me. I'd be running the other direction. But Jesus walks right into this. And this is why the disciples were astonished. That he was committed. and He was going to walk right into it despite. But notice at the end of verse 34, because I think this is key. Easter's coming. He says he will rise again. He will rise again. You know, as we go through this passage, you're going to feel this tension rising as we move on to the rest of the book of Mark that Jesus is facing this opposition, this hardship, this difficulty. And many who had been following him closely now start to back off because they realize they're going to get pulled into this thing. And Jesus begins to become abandoned by those who are closest to him. In fact, his disciples, of course, we all know, they ran away like scared to death when Jesus finally was taken into custody. They ran and hid. Others just denied him point blank like Peter. said, I don't know them. I don't even know who you're talking about. I'm not, I'm not a part of his, his group. And here's the thing. Jesus teaches us that servanthood first is about doing what needs to be done even when it's even inconvenient. Jesus is about serving others even when it was inconvenient. Jesus is a master of this because true servanthood is inconvenient, isn't it? Being a real servant requires us putting ourselves in a place of being inconvenienced. I wish that servanthood was always something that you could like put it into the right time and the right task, right? If it just all fit into that, like on my time frame, uh, uh, and the type, the, the type of activity that I want to do, that, that, then servanthood would be easy and everybody would do it. But that's not the way that it works. And Jesus shows here because in the face of his disciples having this ongoing conversation about who's going to sit on his right and left. And by the way, James and John were his cousins. They're the ones having this discussion. And we're getting ready to read that, that section of scripture. And, and so Jesus, even in the inconvenient moment, knowing he's about to go to suffer, he's still thinking about teaching and giving guidance and direction to his disciples. That's powerful, isn't it? It's inconvenient at that moment. For him to do that. But the next thing we see here, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. (laughs) Again, never a good idea to tell Jesus what to do. Right? But that's what they said. They said, Jesus, we want you to do this for us uh, if we ask you. So you got to promise that if we ask you, you're going to do this. Okay? And he says... Teacher, we want you to do something. Uh, and Jesus just says, well, what do you want me to do for you? He already knows. And they say, well, um, here's what we want you to do. We want you to allow us to sit at your right and your left hand in glory. Just a small favor, right? Just a small request. Just, just kind of a minor detail. Before you die and everything, before all this stuff happens to you, could you just make sure that we're like sitting next to you when you get on your throne? Now, we chuckle about that, but I mean, think about this. This is a serious, serious moment. This is an intense moment for Jesus. And his disciples can only think about who's going to get to sit on his right and his left. And like I said, they were Jesus' cousins. And so they're probably thinking, well, hey, we're family. Surely we got like the inside track. None of the rest of the disciples are family. We got, we got, we got this spot. We got this covered. This is a no big deal. We can, we can do this. And so he asked them this question. You know, well, what do you want me to do? And they answer that. And then... And Jesus says to them, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. I think there are a lot of prayers that we pray that we have no idea 
<laughs> we have no idea what we're really asking. There's times we say, God, would you bless us? God, would you use us? God, would you help us to grow? And in our minds, what we think about that is we mean that like, we would be more like, excited about following Jesus or that we would have more impact for Jesus or that we would uh, be more noticed among other people. And you know what Jesus says here is he says, look, you don't know what you've been, you're even asking to do because to identify yourself with me means you're going to have to identify yourself with suffering. Now, I know that's not a popular message. I mean, let's be honest. I'm going to stand up here this morning, and there are churches all over the place that would much rather say, hey, look, if you want to follow Jesus, like follow Jesus and your life will be good. Follow, your Jesus, follow Jesus and your life will get easier. Follow, follow Jesus and you'll get wealthier. Follow Jesus and your family will be all right. All those things. But listen, that's not biblical. Can I just say to you that the New Testament shows us time and time again that when you follow Jesus, it doesn't get easier. Many times it gets harder. But even when it gets harder, like we just sang in that song before I got up here, we realize that Jesus is still better. We realize that he's still good even when it's hard, even when life is bad, even when it's difficult. And even more important, we're going to talk about in a minute, there's a deeper reality going on behind the scenes here that he says to them, look, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup, uh, drink the cup I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He's not talking about just like getting dunked in water. He's talking about baptism by, by fire and suffering and difficulty that's coming, right? And they're like doing exactly what a lot of times we do. They say, we're able. Yeah, sure. We got this, Jesus. <laughs> say what? He, and, and the thing is, is Jesus is so patient. I mean, he is so gracious here. And he goes, you know, yeah, you, you are going to experience what it's like to be baptized with my baptism and drink the cup I drink. It's just not in the way you think. Because what's going to happen to his disciples? We know the rest of the story, don't we? We know that every one of his disciples, aside from Judas who was with him at this time, who betrays Jesus and, and ultimately commits suicide because of the guilt and shame he's overcome with when he realizes what he's done, all these disciples, they give the, the price of their life to be a part of God's work. Wait, 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 wait. So you mean to follow Jesus means you may have to die? We've talked about this in the last few weeks. There are people dying all over the world right now because they have put their trust in Jesus. They have followed Jesus. Where's Jesus in that? Same place he was when he ascended to be with his father. He's on his throne. But he's got a bigger purpose. He's got a bigger mission. He's got a bigger point than just our temporary comfort and safety. Again, that's not a popular message, but we got to take the word for what it says, right? And he says to them, he says, listen, guys, you are going to have to deal with hardship. You are going to drink the cup I drink. You are going to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared for. It's not that Jesus doesn't have any power. It's not that Jesus doesn't have any say. It's that they've already predestined this plan to unfold. And he already knows in God's sovereignty and God's justice, the Father's heart will win out. And that the person who follows his plan and is serving will be the person who sits at his right and left. And that's a whole other conversation that we can't delve into too much today. But just know that God's sovereign over the, the plan that is unfolding in front of us. And these guys thought that maybe because they were close to Jesus in proximity, or maybe because they could butter him up enough, that that was going to get them those seats. Sorely mistaken. 
Now notice this, this is verse 41, because we can't leave the rest of the disciples out here, okay? It says, when the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Now, when I first read this, I'm thinking to myself, sure, they were kind of like sitting back. They're listening to James and John ask this request. And they're thinking to themselves, you know, like, uh, let's see what he says first. And then Jesus says, you know, no, I can't give that out. That's not, that's not how it's going to work. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, jumping on him, like just pouncing on these two guys. But actually, in the original language, the idea here is that they were fighting because they wanted the positions too. They wanted the same place. They wanted that. They just hadn't stepped up and asked. And that's in the human heart, isn't it? Because here's the thing. The opposite of serving is self-centeredness. The opposite of being a servant is to be self-centered. The opposite of the way Jesus lived is to be self-serving. In fact, most of us in our flesh, just like these disciples, when we walk into a room or we are at home or whatever environment we find ourselves in, the natural fleshly question that comes to mind is, what can people do for me? Not, what can I do for people? What can I do for you? What can I do to serve you? That's not natural, is it? From the time we're born, it's not natural to think about how we can serve others. I see this all the time in my life. Not just in my kids. That's the easy place to see it. But to see it in myself. To see that when I get home from work and I just want to go sit in my chair and be left alone. To, and, and I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong to have downtime. I'm not saying it's wrong to rest. But like for me, I know that if I get home, like that's when my work starts. Right? No matter how crazy the day is, when I get home, that's when work starts. And my wife has been working and serving and ministering to our kids and, and, uh, it's in, in all these things that, that it takes to raise a family. And I get home and my flesh says, I deserve like me time. I'm just going to go sit over here and just do nothing, let my wife finish you know, making dinner and uh, taking care of the kiddos. And in that moment, I'm asking, what can y'all do to serve me? And the question is, what can I do to serve you? That's the question that I need God to put into my mind and into my heart. Are you with me? That's hard, isn't it? It's difficult. But Jesus shows he not only served when it was inconvenient, he served people he didn't like. He served people he didn't like. In this passage, he's with his disciples, and sometimes we we think um, Jesus liked everyone. You, You know it's not a sin to not like people, right? It's a sin to not love people. But there are actually people that when you look at them, you don't like them. I tell couples this all the time, um, and you married people in the room, you totally get this. Uh, In fact, I'll do a wedding this afternoon, and at some point during the ceremony, I'll look at them, and as a couple, I'll say, look, you guys are making commitment to one another in this moment, a covenant before God and this this company of people that you're going to love each other till death do you part. And that's a powerful covenant. But I want you to know there are going to be days you wake up, there are going to be moments that you are not going to like each other. Right? You're going to get on each other's last nerve. And, and you're going to be like, man, I, the thing that was cute before, when we were dating is not cute at all now. It's a very annoying habit. Okay? And in that moment, you're going to choose to love them even though you don't like them. I'm thinking about Jesus with these disciples. He probably had to have moments you know, he was perfect, so who, who knows what he really thought. But just thinking, like, God, really? These are the 12 you gave me? Like, really? Couldn't we have done better? <laughs> Can you give me some better options for my, my team here? I mean, these guys, 
I'm sitting here getting ready to go through the hardest time of my life, and they're talking about who's the greatest. They want to know who can sit next to me when I get into my, my throne. But even in that moment, he served the ones he didn't even like. And he fought through it, and he loved them. Because real servanthood is rooted in love. Not just like, but love. Real servanthood is rooted in a love. It's a commitment. It's a decision. It's, it's us saying we're going to love. It's Jesus loving even in spite of the unlovableness that's there. In fact, Jesus teaches in other passages that we should love our enemies. We should serve those who are actually uh, against us, which is crazy talk. Unless you get the bigger picture of what God is trying to do. Because it doesn't always register in our brains what God is trying to do. It doesn't always fit with our flesh what God wants us to to follow him into. But notice what happens when you get to verse 42. Jesus called them over and he said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and their men of high positions exercise power over them. So what is he saying? The leaders of Jesus' day did exactly what the leaders of our day do, right? Nothing's really changed. That the, the people at the top of the pile just tell everybody else what to do. They dominate them. They, they rule over them. And they get stuff done that way by just saying, hey, look, follow my instructions. Now, I'm, against, I'm not against order. I'm not against leadership and direction. In fact, the, the scripture teaches us that we should have authority and that we should get under authority and that it's dangerous to get out from under authority. But I'm talking about the type of authority that we're under. I'm talking about the type of leaders they're elevated in our culture. And a lot of times they're demanding, dominating kind of leaders, right? And so Jesus says, this is what's normal. But then in verse 43, he turns it around and says, but it must not be like that among you. Well, how does it work? If this is all we see, how does it work? He says, on the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. We've been saying through this whole book of Mark, Jesus is just turning everything on its head. In any of the Gospels you read, it just feels like, wow, this is like totally opposite of what we see in the world today. It's totally opposite of what we feel. It's totally opposite of what, how we think. And so again, Jesus says, this is how leaders typically lead, but the kind of leaders that follow me, the kind of leaders that are kingdom, big K, Jesus kingdom leaders, are the servants, the incarnational leaders that don't just ask people to do stuff for them, but they serve others. They don't just uh, think about how they get stuff done from people, but they actually enable and empower them to accomplish what's in front of them to do. I mean, think about Jesus's example he gives right before he goes to the cross. He has a meal in Jerusalem in an upper room with his disciples. You guys remember this picture? I mean, it's one of the most famous pieces of the story of Jesus' final days on the earth where he's there and he's in an upper room and he's hanging out having a, a meal we call the Last Supper. And when they show up on the scene to have this Last Supper, there's no servant around to get them prepared for the supper. And Jesus, instead of saying, hey, guys, my, my, my life's getting ready to get a little rough here. Can one of you guys come serve me? I could really use a foot massage right now, right? 
And could somebody, could somebody meet my needs right now? I really could use somebody to take care of me. I'm getting ready to have to go through some hard stuff. Would somebody come give me a shoulder rub and kind of take care of me and minister to me before I go into this? Is that what Jesus does? No, what Jesus does is he, he steps up to the plate. He takes off his outer cloak. He puts on a towel and he washes his disciples' stanky feet. That's craziness. Why? Because then he goes on to say, he, he said, just as I have done for you, now go and do likewise. Go and serve others. Go and minister to others. Jesus was not a leader who just told people what to do and just put them in their place. He served them. He showed them how to live. He showed them what it looked like to be a truly kingdom-minded person while he was here. He was an incredible example. So Jesus served those he didn't like. And he says there, he says in verse 45, If you have your Bible, highlight this, underline this, circle this, star this. This is the clearest verse in the Gospels of Jesus' mission while he was here. Okay? This is it. You ready? This is the clearest verse in all of the Gospels that tells us why Jesus came. It says this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus served by doing a task he didn't like. He not only did it when it was inconvenient, he not only served people he didn't like, but he did it by doing a task he didn't like. Anyone who thinks that Jesus was excited about going to the cross is not it forgets that he's a human being. He didn't get excited about what he was about to endure. And it says there that he gave his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, a great passage of scripture, which reminds us that his attitude was one of a servant, so much so that he, he laid down his right to be God, he became a human being, right? And then he served to the ultimate degree by giving his life on the cross. That's the ultimate act of service. It's the ultimate act of love and serving People is embodying the love that God has put in our lives, has put in our hearts, that he has demonstrated towards us. You see, even the idea of being a slave is this word doulos, which means voluntarily becoming a slave. Not because you were like made a slave, but that you actually volunteered and said, I'll become a slave. Anybody want to volunteer to be a slave today? Not me, right? And yet he says that we should become a slave to all, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He became a slave. He became enslaved so that we could become free from slavery. That's where it says he said he paid the ransom. He paid the ransom. He paid the money to set us free. Isn't that awesome this morning? Isn't that life-giving this morning? Listen, here's why you and I don't serve. You ready? Because in and of ourselves, we have no capacity to serve and minister to the needs of people around us. We we don't. We can serve this long and, and we are out of gas. We have nothing left to give. We are empty. And so for when I when I say like washing the dishes and I talk about scrubbing the floor and I talk about changing the diapers and I talk about whatever menial task are in your world to do. You're like, look, I get home, I'm tapped out. I have given, 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 I have, I have served, I've done all these things. I don't have anything left to give. And you know what? 
You are absolutely right, but Jesus can give through you. Because in our inefficiency, in our inability, in our shortcomings, in our failures, he is sufficient. And he doesn't just provide enough to minister to our needs. He provides enough for us to minister to everyone else's needs. And in your marriage and in your life, if you want to know how to become a servant, you need Jesus to help you serve because you can't do it on your own. You need him to set you free from your own slavery to sin, to your own shortcomings, to your own selfishness, to your own pride, to your own self-sufficiency. You need, you, you need him to set you free. And when he sets you free, then you can serve others from his surplus, from his goodness, from his greatness, from his grace, from his mercy. Listen, if we sat here today and we talked about serving, and I said, okay, guys, now let's go serve more, or I just guilted you in, you guys are really bad servants. Y'all suck. If I said that, right? And I said, I'll go out and serve. Like, we're all doomed for failure. But because Jesus has served us, because he has ultimately served and met our greatest need, our deepest need, we now can go and serve others from that place. Jesus did this for us. I want to close out with a story. There was a man born in England around 385, and he was born into a Christian family. Um, His dad was a deacon. His uh, grandfather was um, a priest, and they raised him around the things of God, taught him the Bible, taught him scripture, taught him the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that Jesus came to die on, on our behalf and to set us free from our sin, all those things. But He just chose, like a lot of kids who grew up in church, just because you're in proximity to Jesus doesn't mean that you trust Jesus. Just because you grew up around the things of Jesus doesn't mean that you believe that you need him. In fact, sometimes we get really dull ears. I mean, the disciples spent three years with him, and they're still struggling, right, to really realize their great need for Jesus. So he grew up in this home, and they raised him. He just kept rebelling against God and basically just would go out and to live for himself and kind of live for whatever pleasure he could seek and at age 16, however, he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped by some Irish marauders. They came in, they, they grabbed him, and they took him back to Ireland. And they began to um, put, him, they put him into slavery. And so as an enslaved person, he was like working and doing whatever these barbaric people wanted him to do. And in the middle of his slavery, he kind of had just a spiritual awakening. You know, because sometimes it takes us to go going through hardship before we have a wake-up call that we need Jesus. So here he is, he's being enslaved, and he's doing his, his, his work by force, and he has a wake-up call, and he realizes, I need Jesus. And all the things that he had learned as a kid, all of a sudden they came to his mind and to his heart, and it just, he came to life in Jesus. And six years into his slavery, he was actually able to escape. And he went back to Britain. And when he got there, he decided, you know what, now that I've put my trust in Jesus and I follow Jesus, I want to give my life to just leading others to Jesus. And so he did. He, he got trained. And after he got trained, he began to serve a parish there. For 20 years he served. Just served the people of England. And at that point, he was 48 years old. And most people at 48 during that time, which, by the way, the life expectancy was actually less than that, would have been thinking, okay, it's time for retirement. Time to find me a cushy place to kind of finish out my days while I wait for Jesus to come back or I get to go meet him. But he had a vision. He had a dream. And the dream was that 
there were these people saying, we need you to come and to share the gospel, the good news, and they were Irish. And so he couldn't ignore it. And against the wisdom and the counsel of his friends and those others that were in the church, they decided, hey, they kept telling him, don't, don't go. He decided to go ahead and, and go. And he took all that he had learned while being a slave among the people, and he began to think about how does the gospel connect to these people where they are. And he would go from village to village, and he would share the gospel with them. And he would teach them how Jesus had come to set them free from sin. And he would use imagery and pictures and language that they understood because his six years of slavery had given them such great insight. And a church would be planted. And when a church would be established and planted, he would move on to the next village. And he did this over and over until literally a revival broke out in Ireland. Crazy, huh? He went back to the people who enslaved him and he began to share the best message he could ever share with them. And he did this for the remainder of most of his life. This man, his name is St. Patrick. And on Tuesday, this week, March 17th, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And the reason we celebrate St. Patrick's Day is not because there's really good green beer or because green clovers are green at all, though he was from Ireland. In the 17th century, they actually put a feast together in his honor because of an incredible missionary work he had done in Ireland. And still to this day, we celebrate it. Now, many of you have celebrated St. Patrick's Day for years and never had any clue that that's what it was tied to. But I want you to understand that even as we celebrate Tuesday, we may it be a reminder of a picture of a man who had been so overwhelmed with the goodness of God that he was willing to go back to a people who had enslaved him and had treated him, treated him terribly so that he could share the gospel with them. You know, but that's really just a shadow of what Jesus did for us, isn't it? Because the reality is, is that Jesus came among humanity, among, among human beings, and he knew that, that we were ultimately enemies of God, and yet he came and he embraced us, he loved us, and he gave his life for us. And I'm thankful. And so today, when I serve my wife, when I serve my children, when I serve in this church, I don't serve so that people can know me. I hope I don't. But I serve because I want people to know the Jesus that has served us. That's our opportunity. That's our invitation. God invites us to be a part of that. So people will know Christ. When we follow Jesus, we ought to be the most servant-minded bunch of people on the planet. We ought to be always walking into every setting saying, what can I do for others? Because that's what Christ did for us. Our next generation ministries ought to be overflowing with volunteers. Not like, no way, I'm not working with those kids. We should never have a need that goes unmet in the family of God. You know what? Because as soon as we see a need, we jump on it and we meet it. Not because we're good people, but because we serve a good God. And he's been so good to us. It's a response, isn't it? Let's pray.